Our reading tonight is from 1 John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1, the beginning of a new series in the evening, just to comport with the morning, all things come to those who wait patiently for them. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. May God bless us the reading of His Word. One of my early teachers in the faith, Ariel White, begins his commentary in 1 John with a quotation from John Wesley. John Wesley, as you know, is one of the great leaders of what is known as the evangelical revival in Britain and the great awakening here in North America. And in his journals, he writes this. He's in Ireland at this point. The wind being in my face, tempering the heat of the sun, I had a pleasant ride to Dublin. In the evening... I began expounding the deepest part of Holy Scripture, namely the first epistle of John. Here are sublimity and simplicity together, the strongest sense and the plainest language. That's quite a compliment paid by John Wesley, who wasn't uh, short on the, uh, the background of teaching and theology that he knew to be able to make a comment on First John. Others, however, have been less complimentary. Uh, one theologian who's written a commentary on First John puts it like this, it is a grammatical object course which is only intelligible once it has been paraphrased to make it good in English. As well as the grammatical issues, and there are lots of grammatical issues. In fact, if we read it in English from the Greek without monkeying around with it, it would just sound like gobbledygook to you. But there's also the issue of genre. What, what is this book? It's not, manifestly not, a letter in the New Testament, letters like Paul's letters and John's letters, 2 and 3, 2nd and 3rd John, self-identify for what they manifestly are. They are letters. As with all formal correspondence at that time, there's usually an introduction of the author by the author at the beginning and greetings at the end. 2nd and 3rd John qualify as letters, and one of those, First John is, or Second John rather, is addressed to the elect lady and her children. No doubt a metaphor for a local church or a network of house churches viewed individually. So what kind of piece is this? It may be like an encyclical, an official ecclesiastical writing sent to this church that John is writing to. 
The next problem with the book is its structure. If you've read Paul's letters, you'll be familiar with the logical development of thought and themes that we find in Paul. Paul is logical. By contrast, John is all over the place, especially in this particular piece, 1 John. There seems to be no progression of thought in the kind of logical step-by-step process. On the other hand, be it said, that 1 John does have its own unique approach. Instead of going in a straight line from A to B to C, John's thinking operates like a spiral staircase. Uh, Robert, uh, and I can't remember his surname, Law, Robert Law, puts it like this. It's like a winding staircase always revolving around the same center, always recurring to the same topics, but at a higher level, or to borrow a term from music, one might describe the method as contrapuntal. In fact, there are only a small number of themes in this little piece of literature which the author introduces, repeats, inverts, interlaces in different keys into a majestic fugue where unity and variety of tone and effect are wonderfully blended together. So it's cyclical. We'll keep coming back again and again and again to similar themes. Now, what is the purpose of this piece? John is writing to a community of believers, a society of believers, as Calvin would call them. He's writing to a church. And this particular church is caught up in a life or death struggle with a group, singular or a groups, plural, of people who belong to or used to belong to this church. They can be described as adversaries or secessionists. Raymond Brown calls them innovators and progressives. These people were distorting the tradition as it had been handed down to them from the beginning. Now, let's say a word about tradition here. Tradition is a dirty word sometimes in the minds of uh, Protestants and evangelicals. We think tradition is a bad thing. In the Bible, Paul, who uses the word, doesn't think it's a bad thing. The tradition is the way in which we receive and understand the truth that's revealed in Scripture as it's handed down to us by those who teach it and preach it and have affirmed it and enshrined it in the creeds and confessions of the church. That's the tradition. The tradition really tells us what the Bible is teaching and what the Bible is saying. We don't make up tradition of our own. That is foolishness and error. So Raymond Brown calls them innovators and progressives. They were distorting the tradition as it had come down into their hands from the beginning. And these innovators had seceded from the church, the true church that John is referring to. And things had gone to a very difficult position. 
These people, in chapter 4, verse 5, John admits, were appearing to be winning the world. They were being more successful than the faithful church at this point. In fact, in 2 John, chapter, uh, verse 10, he shows us this missionary church, this, these spin-offs, these innovators. Their, their teachers were going around like missionaries, trying to catch people and suck them in to their own communities. They were already, they were already interfering with people who were, who were connected to the church that John is writing to. Uh, in 3 John, we're told that the leader of this group has a name. His name is Diotrephes, someone whose love of the limelight, someone whose desire to control everything, someone who had pretensions to be a teacher of the Word, was already trying to make his way into the local church, teaching people in an adjunct capacity outside of the church, but nonetheless people who were already members of the church. And the Apostle John criticizes them for this. It also seems that there was no ecclesiastical structure by this stage. We're towards the end of the first century. In the early part of the second century, uh, Ignatius, one of the church fathers, makes a strong case for the role of the bishop. The bishop was the teaching elder or the senior teaching elder in any particular community or city. He makes a strong case that the teaching elders should be taking charge of policing what was being taught in the other churches and, and bringing censure to bear on those who were teaching error. But by this stage, there is no ecclesiastical structure available to censure the uh, secessionists. Were they teaching heresy? At this stage, late first century, to use the word heretic or heresy at this point would be an anachronism. It would be to take something that is clear later on in church history and read it back into the early into the early church. Now, at this stage, at the end of the first century, people like Clement of Rome and Ignatius of Antioch prefer words like schism or stasis, which means rebellious dissension, a spirit of rebellion among the people who are dissenting from that which is being taught as part of the tradition to the church. It seems that at this stage in the history of the church, the schismatic was far more dangerous than the heretic. And in particular, the division seems to have centered on divergent views of how to understand, interpret, and apply the teaching of John's gospel, big heavyweight that's in the background of this little book. John presents, in John's gospel, John presents Jesus as the Son of God before the incarnation, in eternity, before creation even. And in the opening words of that gospel, he very, very clearly calls Jesus God. 
And on account of that, the Jews charged Christians with ditheism, that is, believing in two gods. And they banned the Christians from attending synagogue worship. We sometimes call what John describes as high Christology. High Christology, believing that Jesus is God. That's a good thing. We're always saying that from this pulpit, that that's a good thing to believe. But it's also possible to take that high Christology and to leverage it in another direction. That is to say, we make much of Jesus' pre-existence. We make much of the fact that Jesus exists as God, even while he's here amongst us as a human being. We make much of the fact that Jesus was in the world to show us the Father's glory, that Jesus was in the world to remind us that He is I Am. When God reveals Himself to Moses, you remember in chapter 3 of Exodus, I am that I am. God is He who is. He exists in and of Himself. He is life in Himself. Well, If we emphasize that that's all that Jesus came to do, summed up in John's words in his gospel, we have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of the Father. It raises a question in the mind of these secessionists that if Jesus just came to reveal God in human terms, then it doesn't really matter and it isn't really important what Jesus did as a human being, as a man, a real man, the second Adam, who has come for us in our salvation, as the Creed says. So that's what John is responding to here. And in his response, John does not attack what they believe, because what they believe about Jesus as God, of course, is absolutely true. It's real. It's right. And you'll find people like this, people you agree very strongly with in a whole host of subjects. And uh, instead of attacking them as a person, instead of attacking them for everything, we must learn how to be discerning in what we attack. They were right then to believe these high things. In fact, John's going to say that himself in verse 2 when we get there. This is eternal, this eternal life that was in the Father's presence. And later on in chapter 4, God sent His only begotten Son into the world. Now, we can distinguish then these people from the kinds of people that were being addressed by somebody like Ignatius of Antioch. The people he was up against were called Docetists. They denied that Jesus really took on flesh. He appeared to be human. He appeared to be one of us. But he wasn't really one of us. He didn't take on flesh. Now, these people were not Docetists. They were not Docetists, Patrick. These people just thought that Jesus in his humanity was not essential. It didn't really matter if Jesus had come in human nature or not, really. The reality is it was good that Jesus revealed God to us, 
but there was nothing he had to do for us. Now, with this background, then, we can proceed with the opening verse of the passage. This book, by the way, originally had no title. We add the titles. John's three epistles are described as Catholic, that is, universal epistles. Three of seven listed James, first and second Peter, first, second, third John, and Jude. And all of them were recognized very, very early on as having apostolic status. So I just want to begin in the moments that are left with the beginning, the introduction, or at least part of it. Verse 1. And I want you to, to know, it's not so clear here, that which is to make it tidy in English. In the Greek, it kind of runs like this. Let me read it. What? What was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at, what our hands felt about the word of life. Now, you see, this is where we get into difficulties in interpreting the book and interpreting this section of the book. Each line begins with the neuter, the neuter relative pronoun, for those of you who want to know. And you can look it up afterwards on Google and find out what that means. But you would expect, and I tell you why you would expect this, if you read this, it kind of sounds like something you've read before. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that was made. I think that's John chapter 1 in the Gospel. So it makes you think of that, but the question is, is that what the writer is thinking here? If the writer was thinking of John chapter 1, wouldn't he have written, he who was from the beginning, him we have heard, him we have seen, him we have looked at, him our hands have felt the word of life. You would expect that to be the case. But that's not what he does. He uses the neuter, the what. And for the nerds out there, the neuter does not comport with the masculine word, word, or the feminine word, life, at the conclusion of this little section, the word of life. Now, I know you came out on a Sunday night to get stimulated. I'm doing my best. It'll get better as we get going. We're, we're just kind of, I don't know what we're doing at the moment. We're just trying to get going, and, and it's not working. There is, a, in fact, a very real connection with John 1. The words like beginning, they're there in John 1. We've seen in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, you, we read that. The word, that's there. Life, that's there. To bear witness is there. The Father and Jesus Christ and the word fulfilled are all there. John manages to pack into four verses in First John language 
that is spread out over 18 verses of John's Gospel, chapter 1. But there is a difference of emphasis. John chapter 1, the Gospel, focuses on the divinity of Christ. Here, the focus is on the humanity of Christ. John's gospel begins, as I've just said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was face to face with God, and the Word was God. In John chapter 1, John intentionally, consciously echoes Proverbs 8, where wisdom, the Word of God, the wisdom of God, Christ, the wisdom of God and the power of God, is heard to speak from all eternity and to say that he was in the beginning of his work when God started to work the first of the acts of old ages ago. Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. And before there were any debts, I was brought forth. And you find in Proverbs 8, wisdom acting in, in step with the Father, the Creator, to create everything that there is. Wisdom isn't created. Wisdom has eternally been birthed by, by God, but here he is with God at the beginning of creation. But in our text, we don't read in the beginning. But we read the words from the beginning. John Calvin says that this refers to the beginning of the gospel starting with his incarnation and including his earthly life and his ministry. And that's precisely, of course, how Mark uses the word. Right at the very beginning of Mark's gospel, it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This explains why John can say, that which rather than he who... But we must also take very seriously the verbs that John uses. A message, the gospel preached, as Mark puts it, and as Calvin suggests, a message can be heard and seen. The messenger can be seen, or you can read it. But The words to look at are far more than just casually glance towards, to look into and to absorb and to be changed by. And the word to touch, those would be the wrong words to use of a message or a sermon. You can't really look into my notes. You wouldn't be able to read them if you could. In fact, I struggle to read them from time to time, which is why I pause. But we recall a basic principle. Let's recall a basic principle from what you know of the other, the rest of the New Testament. Jesus is both the messenger and the message. He is both a gospeler and the gospel. He is the eternal word of the Father, 
And ministers are not only told to preach the Word, but to do what Paul did. What did Paul do? He preached Christ. He preached Christ. That's not simply preaching Christ when His name appears in the page of the Bible. By preaching the Word of God, we are preaching Christ to men and women. He is the Savior. He is the one around whom all our thoughts are to be revolving tonight. That's the task of the preacher. Right to the Hebrews captures this well. God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. His message and the messenger are one and the same. The word and the word, all caps, meaning Christ, are one and the same. So the incarnation then signaled the beginning of the gospel. The one who existed timelessly, without a beginning, with God, as God, comes to exist in time as a human being when the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. What was from the beginning means, from the beginning means the person, the words, the deeds of Jesus as he reveals himself and reveals the Father to the disciples after his baptism. The one who is eternal and therefore invisible reveals himself in time as the gospel. As the gospel. He's the good news. Jesus is the good news. He showed himself first to the apostles and their associates. They were the first ear witnesses, hearing the voice of the Father and the voice of the Son. John the Apostle was with Jesus throughout the whole of his ministry. His gospel account is the largest and last of the four gospels. And in that gospel, he gives us, he gives us Jesus' life from a theological point of view, teaching and showing us how all of the Scriptures are fulfilled in Jesus. John could say, we have seen with our eyes. We saw him perform signs and wonders. We saw the excellency of his character in his contact with people. He went about doing good. We looked at. We looked at him on the cross. These men, John in particular, had a personal, face-to-face, up-close-and-personal encounter with Jesus, the man. All the powers of human perception were necessary to grasp the fullness of Christ. That's why he uses this litany of language here. We've heard, we've seen, we've looked upon, we've touched. Every aspect of our ability to comprehend and perceive another person was engaged in this process. And John, speaking for all of the disciples who received this revelation, says, we encountered and experienced to the full the human and earthly life of Jesus. Irenaeus was an important early church father. He emphasizes the fact that the incarnation was the only means of teaching us humans the truth about God. 
He reminds his readers that the church tradition goes way back to Christ himself. Christ alone can teach us, in that as God, he knows the things of God, and as man, he can explain those things intelligibly to his fellow human beings. And this John, as an eye and ear witness, passes on what he and his fellow eye and ear witnesses have seen and heard and touched with their hands. In other words, the apostolic witness is believable. If you're struggling with Christianity and you're investigating Christianity, you have to come take this kind of language here very seriously indeed. Christians just did not believe in something they felt strongly about. There had to be so great were the challenges, the cost, the price of following Jesus at that time. You had to be convinced. You had to be sure to be sure that all was as we said it was. All the evidence was available, therefore. All the means of sense perception demonstrated that their witness was accurate and satisfactory. They were competent witnesses. They spoke the truth. And what? What did they hear, see, understand, and touch? The we is singular, but it's a singular of authoritative testimony. He is one among others who saw, heard. What did they encounter? This is the punchline for tonight. They encountered the word of life. Is this a reference to Jesus as the living word of God as in John 1? Well, yes, but not primarily. John is going on to say that the life, the life who had been with the Father has appeared. So that, that's a quite important notion then. If you thought it was John 1, you were not wrong. But this expression, the word of life, acts as a transition I just want you very briefly to glance at the beginning of verse 2. Concerning the word of life, word points us back to the beginning of the passage. The word life points us forward. The life was made manifest. Do you see that? So this, this word of life then is a transitional phrase that bridges the word of John chapter 1 and the life, which is going to be the theme now of First John chapter 1. He's going to talk about our assurance of eternal life. But before he does that, he points us to the Word who is eternal life in himself. So I want to summarize this opening verse in this way. John does some important things here very carefully. First of all, he claims a knowledge known to a few witnesses. He claims to be one of those witnesses. 
John tells us that what was from the beginning became a physical reality capable of being heard, seen, and touched. The eternal, invisible Son of God becomes a physical reality. And we know from from the rest of Scripture, by the work of the Holy Spirit and the woman of the Virgin Mary, he takes on physical reality capable of being heard, seen, touched. Thirdly, he shows us that the gospel then is not a matter of speculation. The gospel is not an idea or a philosophy. The gospel is not something like a hunch that people have or an escape that people might seek. John, John's position is that Christians have something to say, to declare. John has seen, heard, touched something solid, the body of Christ, and he's reporting it. Fourthly, John and his friends are so overwhelmed by it that the author dives in immediately. He doesn't even wait to introduce himself or start with a reasonable start to this to this whole book we're going to be studying together. He just started the way that was handed to me. I just had to dive in right away into this, this grammatical mess. And he sets the pattern for Christian proclamation. Christian preaching and proclamation is not about what we think. It's not me saying to you or other preachers saying to you, this is what we suggest. In my opinion, this is uh, the way we should look at it. Here's my ideas about, about Jesus and about whatever. Christian proclamation is nothing like that. Nor is Christian proclamation hesitant and apologetic. Christian proclamation is direct, definite, and dogmatic, John teaches us. We may be modest and apologetic about our own opinions, failures or whatever they may be, But in the pulpit, that is, in our proclamation, we are required to declare the word of life without any hesitation, without any doubt or peradventure. Jesus Christ is the word of life. And a very brief application here. T.S. Eliot wrote, Where is the life we have lost in the living? For many of our contemporaries, the way to the tree of life has been barred by skepticism, obscured by misunderstanding, overgrown by social habits. What is the answer? God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son, He who has the Son, Jesus, has life. He who has the Son has life. This Sunday evening, do you have the Son of God?
And Jesus, for the comfort of his people, also said in John chapter 6, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. And as we come to this supper, we eat of Christ, not, as we'll see in a moment, in a material, digestible sense, but in a spiritual sense, the one who is invisible is present and signals his presence to us this evening by the bread and the wine. So I invite you to join us at the Lord's table in due course. Let's sing together.